Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslowski. Get your dancing shoes on now, because we about to have a straight-up dance party in here. This is episode number 96. What up? What up? (laughs) Do you need a moment to calm down from that flash dance party I hope you just had with me? Thanks a ton for joining me once again. Whether you were kicking it or sitting down, that was some grooviness. So did you dig either of those two funky, fresh musical snippets? If you're curious, they are my two finalists for the new SASM intro and outro music for a while, and I am dying to know which one you liked better. Whether you comment in the show notes at joelzaslowski.com slash SASM096, tweet me at joelzaslowski or email me. I just want to hear directly from you, number one or number two probably need a little bit of time to decide. Let's hear them one more time. That was number one. Here comes number two. I guess my secret's out. I love techno, house music. It's a little dance party action, yeah. Now, I definitely have a favorite. I do not want to influence what you're going to say. So tell me however you like a number one or number two. All right, let's get back to our standard funky format. As always, this episode is brought to you by my voice and Patreon supporters. Because I do not have sponsors, I just have you. So consider showing your support for me, this show, and our community at joelzaslowski.com slash support. Now, here's an extra dose of love to Benny in Germany, who recently left me a wonderful iTunes review. Benny said, Joel's episodes are always interesting, inspiring, and very entertaining. The conversations are diverse, and he facilitates them in fun ways. If you want to lead a minimalist life, I highly recommend Smart and Simple Matters. Thank you, Benny. Boy, I bet you didn't think that you'd ever feel like you stepped out of a discotheque while you were cranking up Smart and Simple Matters, eh? (laughs) I just want you to know that I appreciate you and receive those words with a lot of gratitude. And when I haven't been trying to get the world to have a dance party with me, I've been doing lots of Simple Rev stuff lately. Uh, For example, I am prepping two Simple Rev hosted webinars with my pals Anthony Ungaro of Break the Twitch and Ethan Waldman of thetinyhouse.net. They are going to be super sweet. My partner in all things Simple Rev, Sarah Waitcamp over at parentswho.com, 
has been busting her booty beside me to have every ticket for our Simple Rev 2016 event in Minneapolis. On September 16th and 17th, we want them all accounted for by the end of this month, March 2016. If you've been excited when you've heard me or other folks talking about the simple living, community building, authentic conversation fun that happens at a Simple Rev event, you have a few days to join us too. You're invited to get your ticket at simplerev.com slash tickets. Okay, now for some continued goodness. I had the pleasure of chatting with a big Smart and Simple Matters enthusiast and someone that I am enthused about, Emily McDermott. We discussed the power of online communities, finding an accountability partner, why asking for help early prevents you getting overwhelmed later, why spreadsheets are great tools for words, not just numbers, and much more. Actually, you know what? Let's just do this. Verbal dance party, ahoy! Here we go. Goodness, I feel like a happy dance, which is because my guest for this episode is Emily McDermott, a fellow happy dancer who started her Simple Living journey in January 2015 when she signed up for Leo Babauta's Sea Change Habits program and read a wonderful book by The Minimalists called Everything That Remains. She's the blogger behind Simply Emmy, is just about done with her first children's book, Little One, and enjoys choreographing dance routines, taking walks with her husband's pat, and writing poetry, which I know about firsthand. Maybe that'll come up. Well, welcome to the show, Emily. It's so awesome to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, let's take a little stroll down the Seas of Awesomeness Road, where we always start a conversation. I want to help people understand how you came to be the person that you are today. So, will you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth, or maybe even one or two experiences you had growing up that had a big impact on you? So, I have enjoyed writing poetry since I was really, really young. In fact, I still have a book of poems that I started back when I was in fourth or fifth grade. And in fifth grade, I wrote a novel on notebook paper in my uh, uh, original handwriting. I still have it. That was over 100 pages long, and it had a very exciting title, Life Has Its Ups and Downs, which I never <laughs> never changed the title of that. But um, it was something where I was very proud of because at the time I thought that I might be a journalist or an author when I grew up. And I kept writing poems um, through elementary, middle school, high school. Also in college, I ended up writing a couple of papers that were completely rhyming, which was kind of a risk, but, but actually paid off. And now as an adult... I enjoy writing poems for other people and just really um, focus more on the rhyming poems. And it's almost like a, a puzzle for me, uh, like a mental challenge. I really, really enjoy it. So that would be probably my, my first one. What do you mean by papers that were completely rhyming? In so you're writing academic papers for your professor in college that are 10 pages, single spaced. I don't know how long these are. And every single line rhymes? Yes. So it was, I think in my sophomore year, I was taking a class called individual freedom versus authority. And we were looking at some of the philosophers in this example, it was uh, Aristotle and Hobbes. And they were talking about the nature of man and how they viewed individuals. And so I took a little bit of a risk and I called it a rapper's rapper's debate instead of rapper's delight like the song <laughs> and i wrote it completely rhyming and i actually got a an a plus on the paper so i was emboldened by that and then wrote one other one in a um, american legal culture class that was about second amendment rights where all of these justices were having conversations about how they viewed one particular situation. And I did, did pretty well on that one too. 
So it, those are the only two that I did, but it was one of those things I was really kind of taking a risk putting it out there and realized that I did have a gift and it's something that I should continue to share. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you've had positive feedback along the way and you continue to be emboldened. When you say taking a risk, what did you see as the downside if you were to get negative feedback on these poems? Well, back then, it was a little different than now in that I attributed a lot of my self-worth to the grades that I would receive. And the risk was that the professors would say that there maybe wasn't enough content or it wasn't in the format that they wanted and then give me a bad grade. That was really the risk. (laughs) Was now, you know when you kind of look back at those types of things, you realize that those experiences are what help mature you. But at the time it was sort of a short sighted, Oh, I want to make sure I get, I get a good grade on this. And that was really it. I know how that goes. So many of us, especially here in our country, there's so much external validation that we seek from our parents, from our peers, from our teachers, And a lot of that comes from that single grade that you get, which often I've since learned is super subjective. And there are some teachers that I've had over the years, they had no business even giving me a C for some of the work that I did, but they liked me. There are other teachers who didn't like me so much, and I felt like I just totally kicked butt with a certain paper, and I got a bad grade. So I think we both learned how to uh, let go of some of the need to seek our purpose, our validation in life from the external praise of others. It's still really hard though. And that starts so young Mm -hmm. and I can see why way into adulthood, a lot of people are still super caught up in that constant need for just a drip. Hey, you're good. Good job. Yes, you can do it. I I know I can do it. Thank you. And I've internalized that now. So I, I I don't need that as much anymore. Yes, I'm I'm the same way, especially this whole, you know, gold star concept that sometimes I want internally, I want recognition for the things that I'm doing. And even now I seek it, obviously not from my parents necessarily, but sometimes from my, you know, from my husband, I mean, with, with small little things saying, oh, honey, I took out the trash and expect him to say, oh, good job. Or, oh, you know. Thank you for doing that when really it's not something that I need to share or have validation for, but I, I still have that part of me that seeks that approval. And that's something that is a constant, um, I'm always constantly trying to be more self-aware and realizing that that's what I'm seeking and then dial that back and to realize that what I'm doing is good and what I'm doing is enough and I don't have to have that validation. Well, on that point about just increasing your self-awareness and understanding, even if we're not necessarily looking to change the way that we are, at least understanding the way that we are so that we get what makes us tick. I know that you have somewhat recently, and we're recording this in March 2016, and I mentioned in the introduction of you that you got into this whole simple living thing back in January 2015, not so long ago in the grand scheme of things. Was the catalyst to get into simple living based on you figuring out, hey, I can be more mindful, maybe I can meditate, I can increase my self-awareness, or was there another reason why it appealed to you? Well, I would say two things. So I had signed up, um, I had read Gretchen Rubin's book, The Happiness Project, and had signed up for her emails. And in one of the emails, there was an interview with Leo Bogata, and that's where I became familiar with him and with Zen Habits, and then decided to sign up for the uh, Sea Change Habits program, where every month there was a focus on a different habit. In January, as I recall, was meditation. So I had been meditating uh, off and on since then, and it was something where it was maybe five minutes there, you know, 10 minutes here. And also I had done something, uh, Oprah and Deepak Chopra, they actually have free meditation challenges that are about 20 minutes or so. And I had done a couple of them, but I had never done it in a systematic daily way. And so that was the first time when I really thought, okay, can I, you know, can I do this for uh, five to 10 minutes a day and really commit to it. And I did. And that 
really helped that combination with some of the resources that were available through the Sea Change program, um, primarily the book from The Minimalist, Everything That Remains. When I read that, it really opened my eyes to this whole um, culture that I was really completely unaware of. So I think the mindfulness, and as I was doing the daily meditation and then reading some of these um, resources, which included both that book, there also was, uh, there were resources um, from Live Your Legend, um, from Scott Dinsmore, which I know you're very, um, very yes, close um, I'm with him. I'm a huge, him. huge so, Live Your Legend guy. Yeah, so those were really important. And also, my husband had actually introduced me to David Allen's Getting Things Done, and I had already started um, doing that as far as um, maintaining our files and getting into Evernote and scanning everything and trying to do inbox, you know, inbox zero. And, and so it all was kind of culminating at the same time. Um, and I think that it was just a great time for me because it was the combination of all of these factors and really being able to apply them all to my life and in the uh, Sea Change program, they were very big on accountability. Mm-hmm. And I'm a very big external accountability person. So I found an accountability partner through the forums uh, in the Sea Change program and was able to check in uh, with them on a daily basis about some of these new habits that I was trying to implement throughout the Sea Change program. program. Yeah. Are you, uh, you spoke about how it all started with Gretchen Rubin and the Happiness Project. And I haven't read her most recent book, Better Than Before, but I've listened to enough podcast episodes where she's been interviewed where I feel like I've, I know this book inside and out. And she talks about these four different uh, quadrants that people might fall in. And I won't go into all of them, but one of them is an upholder, meaning somebody who loves to be accountable to others and also loves to hold others accountable. I am totally an upholder. Do you know anything about this new book? Would you consider yourself somebody who just thrives upon giving and receiving accountability? So I actually, yes, I am familiar with the book. I haven't read it, but I do listen to Gretchen Rubin's uh, podcast, Happier. That's one of the main podcasts I listen to, and she talks a lot about the four tendencies and that. I consider myself a little bit more of an obliger, and the only reason is, although I am definitely big on keeping others accountable. I have more of an issue keeping myself accountable (laughs) without the external. So I'm really good. If I feel like there's any chance that I could disappoint somebody, that is like a major, major issue for me. And again, something probably stemming from, you know, childhood and needing um, more of the external validation and everything. But sometimes I have a hard time um, with the accountability to myself when there's no one else that's checking in to say, oh, you know, did you did you meditate today? Or, oh, you want to have that cookie or, you know, that dessert. Do you, do you really need to have that because you're trying to eat healthy? So I think I fall a little bit more on the, um, on the obliger side than the upholder. I gotcha. It's, it's hard to, we can say yes to everybody else really easily and really rapidly, but saying yes to ourselves, which oftentimes means saying no to other people, uh, putting ourselves first so that we can be of, of greatest service to other people by filling our cups first. I'm constantly reminded by my friends that I, I need to fill my cup first, which is why I do my daily meditation as well. And recognizing that there are seasons of life where I can say yes to certain things and where I am right now in terms of the kind of work that I do, having two young children in the house, there's just some things that I'm desperate to say yes to, but I can't. I have to say no, and I have to prioritize other things above them. I know based on our previous conversation that you have struggled with that as describing yourself as an obliger and not wanting to let other people down. You've had, especially in the fall, I believe you said, that's your season of life when all these cool things, all these cool extracurricular activities all come together at once, and you have all these different roles that you've taken on. I think you do something with families and global transition. I'm not sure if you still do. Mm-hmm. I know you mentioned you're a mentor for students at American University. There's probably a number of other things that I'm unaware of. So my question is, 
how do you do all these things that you're passionate about while still challenging yourself to say no to the things that are not essential? Well, saying no to the non-essential has been a shift also, which I think has happened over the last year plus because I, my normal default is somebody needs help. I'm obviously the one that has to do it, that there's no other option, which is not, not true. And just using work as an example, um, obviously most people, they uh, take vacation and I do not check my phone or email on vacation, which in our culture seems a little bit strange. But I've realized that I actually am completely disposable or replaceable, which I don't mean facetiously. It's just that there are other people that are able to do what I do. Somebody will step in. It will get done. So it doesn't all have to fall on me. And that has been just very eye-opening, not only at work, but also with volunteer activities that I'm involved in. And um, you're correct, I am um, on the board of an organization called Families in Global Transition and have taken on uh, more of a leadership role as a communications chair. We have an annual conference, and while I have a committee to help me, I um, always have this tug to feel like I have to do it all. And what I've realized is not only is it okay to ask for help, but instead of that being the, oh, only if I've I've gotten to the point where I feel I can't handle it and I need help, that needs to be at the beginning Mm -hmm. where I just know I can't do it all and being willing willing to ask for that. And also, um, I'm going to be... Um, phasing out some of my uh, volunteer activities over the next uh, couple of months because I'm going to be um, giving birth to our first child in a couple of months here. And it was really important to me to focus on, okay, I'm entering a new phase of life. What is, what is the most essential? So I'm involved with my church. I'm involved with families in global transition. I'm a mentor, do these things outside of, and have a full-time job. So what, what's the next phase for me? Well, the next phase is being a mom, which I've never experienced before, and I want to give my full attention to. So I was very clear with my volunteer activities that I'm going to be phasing that out over the next couple of months and only take those things back on if I feel that they're contributing um, value not only to other people, but also to me and in line with, with my values and, and what I want to, what I, what I want to accomplish. So it's, it's difficult. I still have the voice inside me all the time saying, if you don't do it, no one else will, but I know it's not true. And I have to trust that, that everyone else is going to be just okay. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm not involved. <laughs> well, you know what else won't happen unless you do it yourself is mm-hmm. taking your own schedule, your own priorities into your hands. If we fail to prioritize right. our lives, then everyone else is going to do it for us. So it's it's become essential for me. And there's other books that I've read that have really, and podcast episodes that I've listened to that have convinced me of this. There are people who are good people, people I love, people who I want to help, who are constantly seeking my time, attention, resources, money, everything. And that's wonderful. They should. I want people to feel comfortable asking me because I'm certainly doing a lot of asking as well. But then it's up to me to have that moral compass, to know what my values are, my non-negotiables, and be able to say yes to the things that support them about habitual connection and making an impact with my voice, focused family time. These are all things that I've done the internal work. I've done the continual reflection so that I know on a day-to-day basis and a moment-to-moment basis is what I'm doing, is what I'm saying yes to, reflective of where I want to go, the promises, the commitments that I've already made. Can I uphold those before I take on any more? One thing that I do want to mention, so super excited for you, uh, two in, a, in approximately two months, you're going to have your first kid, and wow, yes, they do change everything. I'm glad you realized that, and you've made some, some, you set some expectations in terms of what you can and can't do. Also, as far as the kids go, you have gone from writing poetry, and now you are on the cusp 
on the absolute cusp of getting this children's story that you've been writing called Little One out there for the world. I want to talk a little bit about that as well. First of all, the premise is cool. So can you tell us what's the premise for this book? Sure. Um, I wrote a poem for a friend of mine that was expecting her first child way back in 2005. And it is a poem that is about a mother that's just very excited about her um, son, in this case, coming into the world. And the poem sat there and sat there and sat there. And I had always, like I said, back when I was in fifth grade, uh, wanted to be an author or get some sort of my writing out there. And I never knew kind of what that was going to look like exactly but I knew that poems were an area, writing poetry was an area that I excelled in. And so last year, this was around the March-April timeframe last year, I decided, you know, I might as well give it a shot. So I actually did a Kickstarter campaign and just um, advertised it through social media to primarily friends and family and also tried to get some press releases out there and was successful in raising about $5,000 to go towards the illustrations and the publishing of, of the book. Because the book itself, since it's essentially the poem, was already written. So and there's not a lot of editing to be done <laughs> with a poem like that. So I found an illustrator online, contacted her. She was interested in the project. And she has just uh, completed the illustrations. We're getting them um, formatted. And I'm planning to publish it through Amazon's uh, Create Space and market it um, independently because it's just, it's just important for me to get it out there and hopefully to get it out there before my own little one is born. Yes. Again, going back to priorities. <laughs> well, I know there'll be at least 61 people who are interested in getting it because that's how many people you had backing your Kickstarter campaign. I'm on the page right now, and that's cool. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you and have you tell your stories and share your experiences, you're not known. No one who's listening to this podcast episode has probably ever heard of you before. And that's wonderful. That's a positive thing. There's so many people who, I won't say they're under the radar. You've made a conscious choice not to try to be some kind of social media personality or some big time blogger, yet you still have so much to offer and so much to give. And you're showing that with writing Little One. You're showing that with the stories that you're telling us. So it's, it's really cool to see what, quote, some average person can do and you are way above average in so many ways i'm really proud and i'm excited to i'll link to that in the show notes of our episode whether the book's available when people are listening and they go there um there's a lot of really cool stuff i of course will be getting my own copy when it comes out oh well thanks joel i appreciate that Uh, can we talk briefly since we're on the topic of kids and controlling what you can control so you started this kickstarter campaign last year you knew what you needed to do to make it a success you put in the work it was success awesome you also talk before we started recording you talk about you've worked hard you've got a good job that was in your control way to go if you want to get into shape, we know that we can do a lot of bodyweight exercises or go for a run and get high endurance. These are all things that are directly under our control. But when it comes to uh, having that child, I know that you have mentioned to me that that's been really tough for you in terms of there are so many things in life that we can control, but yet uh, when we have the child, the sex of the child, the health of the child, there are so many things that are out of our control. Would you mind telling us a little bit of the backstory about you and this this sense of control and how you've had to relinquish that a bit when it comes to your kid who's going to be here soon? Yes, definitely. So my husband and I, um, Pat, we have been married a little over seven years. And we had, like most couples, talked about the fact that we wanted to start a family. It was always in the plan. And like a lot of people, we thought, okay, we want to have two kids. And it wasn't necessarily the whole you know, American dream picket fence type of thing. We just, we wanted to have children and wanted to hopefully have more than one. And when we decided um, we actually wanted to start a family after we were not only more uh, established financially, but also established in our marriage, which personally I feel um, is important, at least to me, 
that we have that solid foundation, we found that it was um, very difficult and we were not being successful. So um, actually in July of um, uh, 2013, I had a very... Um, early on miscarriage, which we weren't even really trying at that point. And after that point, obviously that was very devastating, but after that point, we waited a little while and realized, okay, this is, you know, something that we, that we want. We want to start um, kind of a family. Um, one of the things that you're told when you have a miscarriage, which I, doesn't really make you feel any better is, oh, well, at least you can, you know, you can get pregnant. So even though that wasn't much of a solace at that point, yeah, that um, we knew like that it was comforting. No, it's not. <laughs> but um, when we uh, were starting along the path uh, and weren't being successful, we did talk to um, the doctor about um, fertility treatment options and um, found out that we have something that is uh, called unexplained infertility, which again, doesn't make you feel any better. So essentially that means there's nothing wrong with you. You're just not able to have kids easily. So, um, so we continued along and we ended up, um, doing, uh, in vitro fertilization, which, um, was successful. And I actually found out on my birthday, uh, September 15th, that we, um, were successful with that round, which was, the best birthday present you could ever ask for. Um, but as far as on the control side of it, yes, I've always gone through my life. Things had always been relatively easy for me. Um, was able to, um, you know, get good grades and um, go to school and get a good job. And I was always, you know, under the impression, okay, if you're working hard, you're going to have a certain outcome or can be generally um, thinking that this is the way it's going to be. Well, when it came to this, it was completely different. And, uh, I really had to dig very deep. Um, this, uh, whole experience definitely, um, impacted my, my, my faith and my ability to let go and, um, to know that God was in control and that I just really could not, control situation because when you are going through infertility, um, people don't really talk about it. They just make the assumption that you want to have kids, you're going to have kids. And so it's very difficult to kind of put on that happy face for everyone and say, oh, we're trying, oh, we're trying, oh, we're trying. And all the while you are looking at your life in 28-day cycles and constantly worried and constantly wondering, um, what's this, what's that? And there was just no way I could control any of it. And it was the first time in my life where I really had to let go. And, um, luckily we were successful, but I, I, the reason I'm sharing it also is because I, I feel like there's a lot of people out there, um, that struggle with infertility and no one really talks about it. Um, and it isn't until I started being more courageous as far as when someone would say, oh, are you guys trying to have kids? Instead of saying, yep, yeah, we're trying and just stopping the conversation there, I would go on and saying, yes, actually, we're going through fertility treatments right now. We're going through IVF. And people say, oh, my sister's doing that. Oh, my cousin's doing that. Oh, I know my coworker. And it's amazing when you kind of are taking that extra step to open up a little more and be more vulnerable with people that I ended up getting so much more comfort because I realized I wasn't alone the entire time that there were so many people that knew people that were going through it. So that's another reason why I feel very passionate about sharing our journey because I I just feel like at least in American culture, I don't know about other countries, but it's just something that's kind of swept under the rug. Yeah, I know it is. I have conversations with friends about it, but they're atypical, but it sounds like you, it took a a couple of years for you to get to this 
point where you're comfortable. You and I were talking in public about something that is not that it's frowned upon, but people are just not comfortable talking about these things. You mentioned that you needed to dig deep in order to get to the place that you are, and it even impacted your faith. What do you mean by that? How, how did this challenge you in ways that nothing else has ever challenged you? Well, one of the things that I've learned as I've grown in my faith, and I'm um, a Christian, um, is that um, God doesn't care about your performance. That was very strange for me to learn, (laughs) because growing up, it always was, well, you do good things, you know, the outcome is good. It's kind of what I was always taught. And what I learned was, again, here I was thinking I was a good person, you know, that I'm kind to other people and try to be understanding and do all of these quote unquote Christian things. And yet the thing that I wanted most in the world, the thing that was uh, a part of my soul, I just knew I was destined in this life to be a mother. I couldn't do anything about. And it's very easy in those situations to say, God, why me? Why me? Or even if you don't believe in a higher power, just saying, why me? Right? Mm -hmm. It's really easy to do that. And what I had to do was to really, again, release that control and that outcome. Um, and, And in my case, I released it to God and just said, God, you know that this is part of my being. This is who you made me to be. And if you want me to have a baby myself, great. If you want me to adopt, great. And I know that it will be kind of revealed over time as to what that's supposed to be. But I had to, when I was doing my meditation, I constantly tell myself, um, help, you know, God help me to um, accept the things that I can't control. Just sort of like a mini serenity prayer type of thing. And I just constantly use that as my mantra, breathing in and breathing out and doing that. Um, and then also just looking at myself and seeing myself as a mother, even though I didn't have any children, which I know sounds weird. <laughs> but sometimes if you feel like something is an essential part of yourself, but it's not actually the reality. You still have to view yourself that way and just know that one way, one way or the other, um, it's going to, it's going to be like, if that has been planted in your being and your soul and your heart, that this is what you're supposed to be. It's going to be, it just may not look the way that you think it's going to look at the end of the day. There's so So many ways to be motherly without actually being a mother. Mm-hmm. There's so many ways to nurture exactly. without having a formal role in someone's life, without somebody saying, hey, this is now your kid. I know 12-year-olds who are motherly, um, who are amazing with children, uh, and who kind of take on that, that mother role for kids who are not that much younger than them. So we as adults, we can certainly assume that identity anytime that we want. We don't need anyone's permission to do that. I'm glad that you've done that as well. I, I have a quick question for you as far as the meditation goes and kind of combining a serenity prayer with breathing in and breathing out. When you meditate, do you intentionally incorporate prayer into it or do you do both? You have your meditation practice and then you also have your religious practice of prayer. Mm-hmm. How does that work? I do, I do both, although I will say I have not recently been as consistent with my meditation habit. (laughs) Full disclosure, um, my husband actually has been a lot more consistent um, than I've been with that, but I am consistent, um, more consistent now with my prayer uh, life. I um, pray actually in the car, well, at least Monday through Friday, in the car on the way to work, and I do that sort of as a separate practice than meditation And when I am meditating again, sometimes I do guided meditation. I use the same app. I think you do the insight timer um, app. And I have been more doing the guided meditations that are available um, because those just, I like just being able to pick the amount of time and so forth. But if I'm doing one that is not guided, 
and just have some sort of nature, you know, nature sound in the background or whatever, then I will um, select a mantra if it's not something that has been um, provided already. So that that serenity prayer sometimes is what I use. Um, sometimes just with the, the Oprah and the Deepak Chopra ones, they had a Sanskrit um, one that they would provide to you. So that I do separately from the um, prayer. And I see them kind of as separate things. And that for meditation, it's more of the um, focusing very much on the breath. And then when you see, you know, when thoughts come into your mind, you don't judge them. You don't judge yourself. You just kind of let them go, kind of wave them away. <laughs> like clouds, I think, is what you're supposed to do. You know, just mm. kind of wave them away like clouds. Whereas prayer is very much like a conversation that I actually have out loud uh, with God and asking for guidance, asking um, for me to remember what I want to focus on in my life, asking to be more understanding, more patient, praying for other people, things I know that are going on, on in their lives. So that for me is a very um, different and separate practice, but I think it all feeds me as a person. So they're complementary. I gotcha. Well, that prayer for other people, that doesn't surprise me to hear that a lot of your prayers are not focused on you and what you need or what you want, but you are, from my interaction with you so far, very other-centric, very much about generosity without expecting reciprocity, which is really hard to do. I had a great conversation with a friend, Joshua Becker, about his new book, which there'll be an upcoming podcast episode about that. We had a whole conversation about generosity and how you do that what, uh, and who you're being generous to, even if they don't know it. Uh, even if you are saying prayer silently or out loud in your car when you're driving to work, I think that matters. And at, at the very least, it matters mm-hmm. to us. It makes us feel like we're doing something, that we're not just passive in life. I know you've, you were incredibly generous. I just want to acknowledge publicly for everyone, you wrote me a poem last year, which encapsulated my essence through all the past podcast episodes. It was literally unlike anything else that I've ever received. I cannot tell you how long I was beaming for this act of generosity that you gave me in writing me this amazing 400-word poem. So thank you for whatever you're doing is definitely working, Emily. Well, you're welcome. I think sometimes when people have a uh, creative aspect of themselves, whether it be writing or art or what music, whatever it may be, you have it something in you and you just literally have to get it out some way or else you just keep thinking about it. And that's pretty much what was going on. I had been listening to a lot of your podcasts and just kind of start getting phrases and different things in my head and thought to myself, you know, I think I could make a a great poem out of this and include things like continuous creation challenge and (laughs) some of these kind of very Joel types of things and multi-potentialite. It's nice to try to uh, rhyme multi-potentialite. Oh, goodness. That's Um, a challenge. but (laughs) but, um, But yeah, I mean, it was more... I appreciate it, and I appreciate you saying that it was generous. It, it was um, a pleasure for me because it was just getting out something that was in me that needed to get out. So mm-hmm. I'm glad that you enjoyed it. You even spelled sweet right, and I complimented you on that. By the way, if, if anyone's ever heard me say super sweet, it's spelled S-C-H-U-P-E-R-S-C-H-W-E-E-T. You nailed it. Oh, good. I'm so glad because spell check wasn't going to help me with that one, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, spell t- I, I beat up spell check pretty good when I'm typing. Now, you're better equipped to uh, answer than most. I don't know. Are, would you like to humor me in a how crazy is Joel segment? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> I figured you are well equipped for this. So tell us all, how crazy am I? What, um, what is just absolutely nutso? Maybe it makes you cry. Maybe it makes you laugh. Maybe it just makes you shake your head and say, oh, Joel. <laughs> I will say um, maybe a couple things. Your The thing that I appreciate, well, I shouldn't say it's the thing I appreciate the most. One of the things I appreciate the most are your obscure references to pop culture 
especially from the 80s and 90s. So I'm 35, so I was born in 1980s. We're about the same age, I think. We are almost and exactly so, a year apart. I was born September 16th yeah. in 79, and yeah, we are off on oh. a day on our birthday. Oh, yeah, we are. So I would say I just love when I hear those references because I chuckle and do a little a little bit of eye-rolling, depending on what it is. <laughs> so I really appreciate that, for sure. And... um on the spreadsheet side, um, the funny thing is that I'm very much a a words person rather than a numbers person. So I luckily don't have to do a lot in my job where I'm dealing with Excel spreadsheets where I'm actually having to do formulas and calculate things because it kind of scares me actually. But the fact that you use spreadsheets uh, more so, I would say, on the curating side where you're actually organizing things um, by uh, words rather than numbers within Excel. Um, I definitely appreciate that, and I find it very endearing how excited you get about Excel spreadsheets (laughs) because usually I'm dreading them because I look at them as something more with numbers. Um, But I think that you may be able to still change my mind and to help uh, help help me embrace Brace them a little more because of how how you use them. So those would be probably the two very Joel things that I I appreciate the most about you. Well, I'm going to steal Leo Babauta line and say if I've helped you appreciate spreadsheets more, then I am grateful. <laughs> I don't think he's ever well, inserted have. the word spreadsheets there. And yes, none of my spreadsheets have formulas. There are no numbers. You can be a words person and use spreadsheets. All my curated spreadsheets, they're just words. And I, I use that format to sort and filter and for the built-in functionality of the spreadsheet, which just totally does it for me. Well, thank you for, for pointing out some things that are different and nuanced about me. Crazy is the word that I use, not that I use that in a derogatory way. I've embraced the craziness. I think that's what I appreciate a lot in other people, folks who are just so jazzed about something that most people would roll their eyes at. And you talk to them a little bit, and you, uh, you ask them why a couple of times. And it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see how we, be get, how we get obsessed with dance choreography or writing poems or any of the other things that just that drive us. They fuel us. They become a part of us. So thank you for that. Um, there's probably mm-hmm. some other random facts and funny questions and other things that I could bring up, but I, I just want to ask you right now, we've covered a, a lot of ground and on a number of different topics. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like people to know? I, I guess I would just say that minimalism, simplicity, um, for me, there's obviously a lot of iterations of it and a lot of things to talk about. But what I'm always constantly trying to do is to make sure that my actions are in line with my values and constantly reminding myself what those values are and focusing on them. And that's kind of how, that's how I see mindfulness and simplicity and minimalism. I boil it down to that. And if I feel at the end of the day that what I have done has been in line with those values, then I, I feel like it's a good day. Absolutely. So that would be it. I like it. Well, I know you don't hang out online too much. And if somebody's listening to this and they're not in the general Washington, D.C. metro area and extended, they're probably not going to bump into you too often. But if folks want to connect with you, where would you like them to do it? Sure. Um, Well, I do have my blog, which I am planning to um, write at least a couple more posts in the upcoming months. So even though it's not very pretty looking, um, it's at simplyemmy.blogspot.com. And I am more active, I would say, on Facebook than I am on uh, other mediums. Um, but I do have a Twitter account as well. So for uh, Facebook, um, it's under my name, which is um, actually includes my maiden name, which is Emily Gildersleeve McDermott. And then at Twitter, it's at simplyemmyblog. So it may be good to maybe reach out to me via Twitter first, um, and then uh, we can maybe chat over Facebook or something like that. Because normally with Facebook, it's people that I've that I've met. <laughs> right on. Yeah, I'm, so I'm the same I think, way. Yeah. 
Cool. Well, I will have links to all the stuff you just talked about in the show notes. I'm going to have a link to your book, Little One, whether it's available when this episode is published or not. And I just want to say this has been wonderful. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for sharing a lot of the things that are hard to share that not a lot of people talk about. I know that there's a lot of folks who really appreciate where you went and how deep you went in our conversation. And I'm personally grateful. So thanks for that. Well, thank you. This was a really great experience. And um, I'm just so happy that you that you thought of me. All right. So how are you feeling? After our literal dance party and figurative verbal dance party. Yeah, I've begun to realize that Emily embodies a lot of Smart and Simple Matters listeners, probably even you. She's generous, thoughtful, insightful, and a lot of other good things that end in full. Show her some love, will ya? She's at simplyemmy.blogspot.com, or you can show me your dance moves in the show notes. I'll share them with Emily. You can find them at joelzislowski.com slash SASM096. That's where you will also find links to all the stuff we spoke about. Topic timestamps, takeaways, and more grooviness. Again, that's at joelzislowski.com slash SASM096. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me this show in our community at joelzislowski.com slash support. One of the best ways to do that. Just I just need a simple number one or number two. I'm going to play those new intro and outro music candidates for you one more time. You can dance in your seat. You can get up on your feet. You can do a mental boogie, whatever you want to do. Tell me on Twitter. I'm at joelzislowski. Or in the show notes, joelsoslowski.com slash SASM096 if you prefer number one or number two. You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Soslowski. Now go simplify something, hug someone, or get your sexy spreadsheet on. That was number one. Here comes number two.